answer can be somewhere in the middle. We, we as people on social media can talk about positive change without saying extremes. Welcome to another edition of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University sports podcast, where we talk about the business of sports, entertainment, media, disruption, brands, analytics, all different kinds of things, as we've been doing for pretty much the last five years. Uh, I'm Joe Favorito. I'm usually joined by my co-host, Tom Richardson. Tom's off doing the business side of Tom Richardson today, so I'm going to do this one solo. But we are here at the beginning of June 2021. We've just finished graduation. Um, we are into our summer semester, um, and we're also returning, hopefully, back to a lot of normalcy, uh, not just in sports, but in life overall. Um, but with all that normalcy becomes curveballs. And I think if you are listening into this now or probably six months from now, um, you will obviously know the story of Naomi Osaka and what happened at the French Open uh, which was Memorial Day weekend here. And the issues that that is again brought up with mental health, not just with athletes, but people in general, and mental health being a topic that uh, was on the top of mind of a lot of people before the pandemic and now has really kind of grown, especially with athletes. So um, we're going to talk about that today. And I don't remember if I said my name, but I'm Joe Favorito. He's usually here with Tom, uh, Tom Richardson, but I'm not. Um, and uh, Eric Cusin is going to join us today. And Eric, for those who work in sports business or have aspired to work in sports business, had a pretty traditional path in a lot of big places. And he then pivoted for reasons he will talk about and now runs a foundation which works with athletes and brands and young people, all about awareness and changing the conversation and growing together in mental health. So Eric, welcome to the Cusp Show. Thank you very much. And Appreciate the intro. That's uh, yep. <laughs> well said. And Eric, I, and Eric and I have worked together in a couple of places. We actually worked on a film project together about uh, mental health. Uh, the film wasn't about it. It was um, the way back, but there were a lot of stories in there. And we were able to integrate a lot of his messages into some screenings that we did with athletes and celebrities. But um, so, you know, when you look at your career path, NBA, Phoenix Suns, on the brand side, on the marketing side, on the sales side, New Jersey Devils. Um, and then suddenly you made a pivot. So why don't you kind of take us through where you started in school and then kind of the lessons you learned, I guess, across all those teams that you worked for over the years and and how the foundation came about and where you are today. If I talk too much, then stop me because there's a lot in there. But um, so ended up going to Cornell University in upstate New York and was this, you know, sports obsessed young kid, tried to play every single sport I could, uh, played four sports in three seasons in high school because I was soccer goalie and kicked for the football team at the same time, which sometimes when you're adults, you're, you're ashamed to admit, but that's fine. Um, and then the sports obsession continued in college. There was a coach that wouldn't take walk-ons, even though he had a walk-on tryout for basketball uh, my freshman year. He was there freshman, sophomore, junior year. Then we get a new coach who uh, is willing to take walk-ons, uh, Donahue, who's now the coach actually at Penn. Steve um, Donahue. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And he um, he took the the Cornell to uh, to a Sweet Sixteen. So so I feel good to have a connect with the program there. But got a chance to walk on and play there, and then you know did internships all throughout co uh, college. Uh, IMG, New York Jets, uh, London Towers, British basketball team, which is like 
you know, interning for a rugby team here in the U S it's, you know, basketball is not really well known in, in the UK, but, um, knew I had this, this, this target of wanting to work in, in sports business, didn't know what exactly. And some of the irony of getting hired by the NBA, I was hired by an HR director named Chris Granger, you know, who now runs everything in Detroit there. Yep. And, um, the, the, the gentleman who he hired me in with was a guy named Mark Tatum, right? And Mark Tatum I'm pretty was, well at the NBA. Yeah, so. right? And, and Mark was overseeing what was called marketing properties at the time. And so just to show you how little I knew, even though I'd done internships, which this would never happen now, 2021, where's this, where there's this specialization, I didn't really know what marketing properties meant, right? I thought I'm, I'm going to think about marketing in the general sense. I'll be working with brands and, you know, players and, and, and creative assets, right? Marketing properties was taking Nestle and Sprite and incorporating them into the NBA's marketing vehicles like Rhythm and Rims and Jam Van, right? Like our, our traveling touring vehicles. And so I loved my first year, year and a half working for Mark as a person, incredible. But the reason why this is interesting to this conversation of Naomi Osaka, as I take you through kind of the evolution of the career is, so David Stern was looking for someone at the time who I guess could play the role of, um, you know, appealing to basketball players because at the time in 2000, this is like 2003, there weren't a lot of former players that were hired by the league office. There were a few Rory Babich, not Rory Babich, Rory um, Sparrow sure. and uh, yeah. Mike Bannum. And, um, and so they needed someone to travel around young enough that didn't have a family at the time that could just get up on the road and go to the 30 NBA teams and deliver to the players what was called the business of basketball presentation. And um, part of that was also David wanting to implement a dress code because this is the, you know, um, Allen Iverson and Kevin Garnett era mm -hmm. of basketball. And, you know, how do you deliver that in a way where you show the players you're looking out for their bench best interest in terms of increasing revenues, which is what they cared about and salaries going up and understanding this bigger picture. Right. So so Bernie Mullins, my boss at the time, and I, I, I move into the team marketing uh, op business operations department. And I, I learned kind of in a boot camp type of way how teams generate basketball-related income from ticket sales and sponsorship sales and meteorites, right, and concessions and arena revenues. And I take that presentation that we call the, the business of basketball, and now I'm going around to the 30 NBA teams presenting. Why do I bring it up? Why is that important? Well, the player's salary – meaning the salary cap is a percentage of overall basketball-related income. So if you get the full pie to grow, their slice as a salary cap of that pie obviously grows, right? And so David knew that in terms of motivation, in terms of showing them that the more time they spend with corporate partners, the more time they get into the community, and it's not just about hospital visits, there are stakeholders that are in this business that we need to motivate and get you know tied into this business, the more that the, the pot grows. And so obviously one of those pieces again is media right for everyone out there who's thinking of like the media is all bad or all good right the players very much use the media to their advantage the league very much uses the media to their advantage that's why it's collectively bargained between players and owners for there to be mandatory media appearances because there's things that fans want to know that media is able to get out of this yep. to the players that then allow the sport to grow right we could get into the nuances a little bit later on of can we make tweaks to that what's the best way to set those things up but just as a baseline okay media is a necessary piece of this overall puzzle so then to your point um joe you know got a chance to go oversee 
sales and service for a startup WNBA team, which was the first WNBA team not to have NBA ownership, which is a challenge. You're in Chicago where everyone wants to be outside in the summer because they're inside the whole winter uh, in a market where the bulls aren't helping you. Um, but, but learned a ton there. I would say more of a no system in place whatsoever. Learn just by, you know, going through the motions and seeing what works. Then to Phoenix, where I had John Walker's the CMO and they have a structured CRM system in place. So you're learning system and you're learning their correct way to sell um, by building a database and getting to know your customers and collecting information. Um, that then leads to the opportunity with the devils where we have the Stanley cup final run in 2012, which I was talking with you guys about before the call. And then Florida comes around. So I get this opportunity to be chief revenue officer as this new ownership group has just purchased a team guy who's still there right now, Vinny Viola. He hires a guy named Matt Caldwell um, as his CEO. Matt has no experience in sports before. So they figure it's a good marriage because I've worked in sports for a while on the revenue generating side. Matt's a tremendous leader comes over from financial services side of things. Um, and, you know, we, according to Vinny, get a chance to build the, the culture from scratch. Right. And so I'm loving it. Like if you put truth serum in me, at the time, friends are coming down to visit because everyone from the Northeast wants to be down in Florida. Um, we're getting a chance to interview and really build a culture from scratch. And then I hit the six-month mark, and it was like my brain and my body just hit a brick wall and stopped functioning. Best way I could describe it to people is we were on computers all day. Imagine someone went to the back wires of your computer and just snipped them, and this thing that you've been typing on that's functioning perfectly – all of a sudden blue screens and you can't do anything with it. That's what it felt like to be in my head. And I'll skip details because I think this is less important to this context of this conversation, but two and a half years of dysfunction, laying in a bed, staring in the ceiling, not watching TV, not listening to the radio, just dead to the world, being tried on 50 different psychotropic drug combinations, TMS therapy, and then shock therapy. None of these working for me, being told by a doctor shock therapy was my last resort eventually leading towards meeting with an integrative psychologist, a term I'd never heard before, who just blanketly asked me, Eric, can you tell me what's gone on in your life? And, and the background mm -hmm. there is I had an older brother and a younger brother, older brother uh, from the time I was eight years old. This is what my next 15 years looked like. Breaks his femur bone in an accident, uh, is put in a body cast for a year and then homeschooled. Heals from that and gets diagnosed with ALL, children's form of leukemia. So five years of chemo radiation, finally goes into remission. Is in a Jeep Wrangler with his friends on the way to an Islander game. Speaking of Islanders, um, flies out of the back because there's no seatbelt in the back. Car loses control. He lands on the Meadowbrook Parkway, cracks his head open, loses partial vision, his eyes, and ICU for a month. Heals from that, goes to college, gets diagnosed with a relapse of leukemia. Somehow gets into law school while he's getting his chemo treatment. So for everyone local, goes to Hofstra Law School. I go up to Cornell at this point, get a call from my father as my brother's in law school that he's developed 105 fever. I need to come down to LIJ, if everyone knows that hospital. And we meet with the neurologist. My brother's fallen into a coma. They don't know if he's ever going to wake or if he does wake, if he's going to have any brain activity. Finally wakes after three months of us leaving him on the tube, not knowing what would be the outcome. Has his full cognitive faculty about him. One funny part of the story asks if the Yankees won the World Series. Um, and, uh, his kidneys fail from the rigor of the septic shock, even though his brain is completely functioning well, needs to go on dialysis. We all get tested to see who's the closest match. My father is, donates a kidney to him. That all ends. I get the job at the NBA, and that year I was working for Tatum. Uh, three of my close friends pass away unexpectedly from heart conditions.
Mm. So the reason I bring up that whole story, why it's important context to this overall, especially with talking with Pam Shriver yesterday as we get into the Naomi piece, is I had no idea what the hell mental health was. And when I shared that with the doctor, I'm at 35 in her office telling her that my brain isn't working. Who's to think that the things that I lived through from the ages of 8 to 23 are now what's impacting me with what I was describing with snipping the cords in the back of the computer at 35. It does it, it doesn't add up in your mind because you usually when you feel sick, oh I was exposed to this virus, right? I I got this from this other person or I hurt myself. I walked on the curb and I turned my ankle. You don't think to these long-term ramifications. So it totally changed my perspective of what mental health is. And I just started, you know, again, more, more time on another talk, end up healing through breathing practices and yoga and meditation and more natural practices that I learned the science behind how our central nervous system gets impacted over time and the neurobiological changes that take place. But it led me to do, you know, you're, you're doing a podcast on marketing and sales and sports here. You know, I went to all the largest nonprofit websites in our country. Uh, you know, I won't, I won't name them, but I think people know what they are. And I saw consistency in all of them, which you would think might be a good thing in a space where you're trying to create change. The problem was, and especially coming from, let's use sports as an analogy. When we do playoff campaigns, when our teams make the playoffs, right? Taylor, your, your team is in the playoffs for, for, for the avalanche. It's always about this motivation of everyone coming together. So it's always like all for one, one goal, right? Mm-hmm. In it together, right? Those are always the, they, they steal from each other, the slight tweaks, but okay. So they copy one another, but it's everybody together, teams, fans, community, everyone, right? You go to the nonprofit websites And there's three things that I'm noticing that do the opposite of that in the space of mental health. First is they all start with the stat one in five people are mentally ill. Hmm. All that does is tell everyone who comes to their website or here's their message. If you're in the group, you're up and sick. And if you're not in the group, you're healthy, fine, normal, okay, and there's nothing wrong with you, right? So now you've created a binary concept within mental health, sick or healthy. Second thing was all their campaigns, now specifically going to campaigns, right? They need normalization campaigns to to change a narrative. So what was their campaign? One of them started with stop the stigma. And so then they all took another action word and followed by stigma. Stomp the stigma, break the stigma, erase the stigma. By the way, 2021 right now, look at what the um, Indianapolis Colts are doing. Kick the stigma, right? The Mm -hmm. NFL is doing tackle the stigma, right? What's the challenge with an action word followed by stigma campaign? Stigma is not formed by my microphone in front of me. It's not formed by my computer I'm looking at or the camera I have here. Stigma is formed by people, by human beings. So if we're saying stop the stigma, that means we're pointing the finger at a group of people saying, the four of us, we want to stop the stigma. You guys over there, you're the ones doing the stigmatizing. You need to stop doing what you're doing. That doesn't bring people together. That furthers that divide. And then the third thing was, you know, again, I think some of you guys will find fascinating because especially with more athletes talking right now is it started with, you know, the celebrity space, Britney Spears and Lindsay Lohan, because they were the first ones where the paparazzi was able to capture pictures. But the, the nonprofits would say, you're not alone. Celebrities go through this, too. Britney Spears, she's part of the one in five group. Lindsay Lohan, she's part of the one in five group. But then they would link to an Us Weekly or People magazine story and be like, Britney Spears has depression, shaves her head. Lindsay Lohan has anxiety. She doesn't know how to put lipstick on her face properly, and it gets all over her face because she's a hot mess, right? 
So you add those three things up that are on all of these websites that are consistent in trying to change the narrative. One in five are mentally ill. Let's stop stigmatizing that group of people. And that group of people, now let's go to current day, run off basketball courts and panic attacks, you know, have siblings who kill themselves through suicide, right? Or in the case of Delante West, run around the street with their shirt off, babbling uh, uh, certain words and need their owner to come and rescue them, right? Or a former owner. This is not the narrative we need to get out there to change the conversation, right? And so that was the impetus for forming, you know, the umbrella name of an organization. We're all a little crazy, crazies in quotes, so people know that we're not being literal with the use of the term. We're almost poking fun at the term normal and saying there's not a friggin' person on this world that in this world that's normal. For the naysayers of that campaign, I'll say this: it usually comes from the people who are in the one and the, the previously, you know, determined one and five group, of which I would be considered, right? Because my diagnosis is PTSD. But if if we don't come to the table with terms that everyday people use in their language, Joe, that lamp looks crazy good in your office, right? Mm-hmm. We, this is the way that we speak to one another. We use that language. How are you going to get the four and five people to pay attention to mental health? You're not going to do it by using terms like brain health and mind health, right? Those things, we tried them. They don't work, right? So that was the the beginning piece. And then you know, a, a gentleman that now has become a really good friend of mine, Theo Fleury, the, the, the NHL great, who I hope will make the Hall of Fame one day if the writers and all the powers that be, you know, uh, end up being kind to him, um, is I saw the way that he was sharing his story. Very different than some athletes and people with platforms were sharing before, right? This goes back to kind of the marketing piece of it. Theo wasn't getting up there and saying, I have PTSD. It's when you have these five symptoms of this list of 20 for two weeks or more. Theo was saying, I was raped as a 16-year-old. My house growing up was a volatile place to be. My dad was gambling. My mom um, was giving me all these religious ideas of why I'm not going to have salvation because of the way that I act. Like, my mom was taking Valium in utero, so I know that impacted (laughs) me as, as, you know, an unborn child. Like, you add all these things up, being vulnerable about our story and the challenges we've gone through that's what connects people. And so now our campaign through Theo, having shared his story, we kind of ideated on it and it became same here, which is an American sign language sign. And I, I think of it almost as, as the antithesis of stop or stomp the stigma, because what it's mm-hmm. saying is if we get a lot of athletes, a lot of celebrities and a lot of everyday people, even doctors sharing, I have a same here story, just like the rest of you. It's not about stopping stigma. It's about all five and five of us, not one in five. All five and five of us face challenges. So hopefully that background's helpful, Joe. Yep. Happy to then jump into the Naomi stuff and how that all fits there. But I know yeah. you want the- So before before we get to kind of the present day, um, tell us how you launched the foundation, kind of where the money came from, how the support has grown, and and you launched this right kind of around the time of Michael Phelps coming, talking about his issues, Kevin Love talking about his issues. Um, how did the foundation finally become kind of the aha moment for you? And how has it become a business? Yeah, no, it's so it's uh, non-traditional in that way. Like, so my background is in for-profit, right? It's not in non-for-profit. So I didn't have any knowledge and I still am sure I'm, I'm missing many things, but I'll, so I shared my story on LinkedIn, which is the impetus for realizing, holy shit, with how many people reach back out, that there's something here that we need to help people, right? To give you some chronology, this is a month before the Me Too movement hits with, with Alyssa Milano. 
and three months before Kevin Love comes out with his story. So mm-hmm. I had no idea what I was doing other than writing this long narrative that took 35 minutes to read, um, where my friends are telling me you're a dummy for putting this up there. People just, you know, watch videos now. They don't actually read long form. But the reaction to it gave me this, you talk about an aha moment. I'd say my first aha moment was when the doctor in the psych ward said to me, you need to do shock therapy and it's your last resort. Because I don't think any patient in any health situation should ever be told this is your last resort. Because I'll go out and eat manure for 10 days straight if it's going to help me, right? So that was number one. Number two impetus was when I shared the story and these uh, there was exactly 400 calls that came in from as far as China. And wow. with those calls, what I started realizing was there's not this need that people have to share their labels with me. Instead, everyone's sharing a lived experience story. I lost a child to SIDS five years ago, and I've never been the same. I'm a married uh, mother, two kids. I love my husband, but I broke up with my college boyfriend four years ago. And that knot in my stomach, you know, it, it still hasn't left me after all these years, even though I know I'm with my soulmate now, right? What that helped me realize was, everyone on this planet is going through something, right? And so from a business standpoint, Joe, it's fascinating, right? Like we started with the brand, we started with the message and I started with $0 and didn't want to take any investment, right? Why, why do that? And I I'll be, I'll be blunt and talking about other organizations. There are apps out there in the mental health space that took funding early. There are organizations, uh, you know, that do brain mapping that took money early, when you take money early, there's this expectation that where's my 2x return, my 5x return, my 10x return, which then pressures you into having to do things the way they've done before, which is I'm going to go after the low-hanging fruit of, quote, customers, and I'm going to market this to people who are in the depression category, in the anxiety category, and I'm going to have a fix for them. And again, without naming names, you can see apps that are out there that say, get 10% happier in 10 days, guaranteed. I, I, as a person, I couldn't live with that message. It's not the right message to put out there. So, okay, started with branding, started, leaned on a lot of resources that I had in the sports space, the, the guys that worked with me at the Devils who built websites and graphic designers and did a lot of our logo creation and the website so that I could show people the vision of what we wanted to create, which was an alliance of all these different people coming together, right? Making the signs, sharing their stories, using vulnerability. The programmatic piece, you know, fortunate, I know not everyone gets this opportunity. Darren Ravel had read my story. He's obviously got a pretty big platform. He's loved by some people, he's hated by some people, but he's followed by a lot of people in both those categories, right? And so Darren reached out and said, I'm not ready to share my story yet. But when I read yours, I don't usually put things, you know, I don't, I don't spend more than two or three seconds just glancing over things. I read your entire story. Do you mind if I tweet it out? So that led to Darren and I having a, a dinner um, and where he said, I want to get involved. I'm 40 years old now. I, I don't want my platform to only be about sports business. I want to help in something that I can talk and actually be an advocate for and not just get money for, right? So uh, that's where we launched in, in uh, November of 2017. We had John Starks and Keith Bullock and uh, Theo Fleury and Tyler Hamilton and Amanda Beard and basically launched this idea, which gave us some fundraising dollars. We made about $30,000 on that launch event. Um, and that allowed us to get a little bit of breathing room, right? For like, I was dipping in my savings to like be able to live, right? But, but that now gives us a little bit of cushion. And so 
serendipity is an amazing thing. A woman from uh, Drexel University called me and said, I see your, your branding on the website. I love it. I'm doing a music and mental health thesis and I have to do an event for it. Um, can I borrow your branding? And I said, well, let me find out a little bit more about what you're doing. Just make sure we're aligned. I loved what she was doing. I tell Darren about it. Darren's like, we're driving down there and we're going to be a part of it. So I go with Darren. I go with this uh, singer that we work with and, and this long distance runner who is trying out for the Olympics, all of whom have shared their story. And we descend on this room of 250 people, not really knowing what the hell we're doing. And Darren MCs, I tell my story, the athletes tell their story. We start to talk about different things that we've done to help us manage our situations and how we feel. And the room opens up like you have professors sharing that they've had to take classes off because of mental health. And they'd never shared that before in a room. And they used to lie and tell people it was personal experiences or, or excuse me, uh, uh, family emergencies. You had people saying, I never felt like I was really part of a group, just that I had a label. Now I understand based on what you're saying, I feel a part of this group. And so Dr. Paul Fertal, give him a lot of credit. He's, he's had to go on and do other things since he came up to Darren and I, after the event, and he said, have you guys thought about doing this more on more campuses throughout the country because there's organizations that bring in psychologists and teach us about mental health. There's nothing like this. That's culture change. That's mm -hmm. storytelling. That's inclusive. And that led to uh, Darren and I in, in the ride home, he turns to me, says, we're doing 15 of these next school year. And I said, with whose money and whose time, because you're not getting off. He was still with ESPN at the time. He's like, you're not getting off from ESPN. And I, this is going to cost me a shitload of money to do it. So, um, he said, if, if you can come up with the money, I'll, I'll find the time. And I'll, I'll, <laughs> the other issue was his wife agreeing to it. So he sends out a tweet. I create a landing page off that tweet. We're doing a college mental health tour, you know, targeted towards division one, uh, uh, sports, uh, programs apply now. And right. A lot of his followers are, are athletic directors. We get 57 applications in two weeks, narrowed down to 15 and we create a East Coast, Midwest, and West tour, which is everything from Cornell, Michigan, and USC to some smaller schools like James Madison and Towson and Northern Illinois, right? And that program, I had to self-fund, right? It, it, I know the member of the number in my head. It, it cost me $11,240, right, to do it. By being a, a cab driver slash Uber driver, picking up people like a Theo Fleury, like a Monty McGee Stafford from the WNBA, a Hayden Hurst from the NFL, Jamika Holtzclaw, and bringing them to these different events with us. They volunteered their time seeing the vision of what we were trying to create. And what that led to, the reason I gave the most detail to that is it's led to this ability for us to have credibility in this space that we know what the hell we're doing, right? That programmatically, we know how to create culture change. That by using this combination of vulnerable storytelling meets pop culture, meets the science of stress and trauma, and then tools that we created with doctors who now are, you know, our biggest relationships, something called star exercises, stress and trauma, active release and rewiring, we hmm. can get our five main areas of focus, K through 12 communities, college communities, corporate offices, servicemen and women of first responders. Like I pinched myself that we work with the, you know, Department of Defense and then sports teams and leagues, and we can build these programs out for them, templatize, but then customize for them off the template that creates culture change, gives them the tools that they need and moves the conversation forward as opposed to it being a plug and play in a space where if you just try to check the box, you're going to fall apart in this space. 
how oh, many so so anyway so joe the the business model from that for now yeah right was we get pay for service right so donation for service which gives me flexibility that i don't need to have a hard line stance if i work with bluffton university division three versus providence college the donation amounts they can give are different and they're both okay with that right so that was how we started in terms of subsistence and from there we've created apps right that connect teachers and students coaches and athletes we've created an app for star uh, we've got, um, you know, courses that we teach doctors in integrative medicine and functional medicine, right? You know, the, the, the nice thing is once you develop the brand first, and again, I had no experience in this, so it's not like I, I planned this per se. Once you develop the brand and there's people who trust in what you're doing, you're given opportunity to do things in the space outside of that, that can be revenue generating that start to build a business around it. So when you talk, let's talk about teams and leagues for a couple of minutes, and then we'll go into the, the present day. Um, just ballpark numbers. How many would you say are box checking and how many would you say are committed from all the teams and leagues to, and well, colleges that come along? And, and there's a third category, aren't addressing it at all. Right. Yeah, right. start with that one, Eric. How many aren't addressing it as of, if, as so, of today, early June? So if so. you look at professional sports teams, so 50% are in a, I know this is very round numbers, right? But right. 50% are not addressing it. 25% are addressing it in a very, very targeted way. And then 25% are doing a mental health awareness night. We do it one time a year. It helps us sell tickets. Right. So three categories, pretty even numbers in those. And again, is it 27% versus 23%? So for sure. But I'm kind of giving, you know, ballpark. Which number is growing faster now? <sighs> Hopefully here's it's not the 50%. Here, here's the challenge. The 50% that aren't addressing it, it's organizations where the leaders at the top are fearful that if they dip their toe in the water, it's a pronunciation or, or, or I should say announcement from them. I'm dealing with my own mental health challenges as well, right? So, so, so the groups, the teams that know they need to do it, but, but, but the, the leader of the organization doesn't want to be behind it, you get passed to the, the, the HR person or the chief people officer, they then fall in the other 25% category, right? Of people who are checking the box and doing it. But the chief people officer run the event, invite you, you go there and the CEO isn't even at the event. Okay. Right. And I know I'm talking very bluntly and it's difficult, right? And I'm not, I'm not using any specifics, but so, so the answer to your question, Joe, is that 25% group is the one that's growing more because more of the 50 percenters are realizing we need to do something but I myself don't want to get behind it yeah. where, where we're pushing, right. And I'll, here's where I'll give credit. The golden state warriors of the worlds, right. Um, mm -hmm. in, in the AHL, the, the Chicago wolves of the world, taking this and not saying we're just doing a mental health awareness night. We're doing a week or a month and we're going to dive into topic areas and we're going to show how mental health impacts schools versus offices. We're going to talk about different modalities that help people. We're going to be a change agent and an educational agent for the community because this topic's so important. That's a lot different than slapping our logo on a t-shirt and taking a picture on the court after a game. Um, the 25% who are engaged, you mentioned a couple of those teams. Um, is the, the finance one of the motivating factors? Like they can sell it to a health or a pharma company? Yeah, that, 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 there's a big piece of that. But, um, you know, the Warriors, are, and maybe maybe this year was an anomaly because, you know, they weren't pushed as hard because they didn't have as many tickets to sell. But Warriors are an example, like, in it, and it, I get working for Rick Welts at the Suns, I guess, you know, it, it, it stems mm -hmm. from the top. 
and a guy who wasn't open for a while to his credit and is open about his sexuality, which in and of itself right. is a mental health topic. Um, the, the warriors built this and gave us the, 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 the tools and the resources to be able to go to our doctors and say, what's the right way to build this? Whether we don't bring in a dollar, we do bring in a dollar. We do not. Right. So wow. we got the Kaiser doctors involved with some of the stuff we were doing because they wanted to have involvement because they were a general team sponsor, but is it an eye on building something that will be revenue generating down the road for sure. Right. Um, but I think like Joe, here's the interesting thing. Like what mental health can be is more and more assets for the team to sell. Right. Correct. It's not this like, well, if you dedicate time to it, you're only being this good community partner by itself, community involvement. If you're tackling the biggest issue in our society, guess what? That's sponsorable. <laughs> and yeah, guess what? That sure. makes fans want to come out more because you're doing the right thing by them. Mm -hmm. um, so let's uh, spend a little bit of time talking about not just Naomi Osaka and the reaction, which was polar opposites, depending on the 24 hours you, you know, you <laughs> dropped in over Memorial Day weekend. Uh, and I was lucky enough to have a conversation with a, a journalist on Saturday, just trying to get their take. He was in Paris and he said, there's a whole story here that's going to come out. And everybody who's criticizing her is going to feel really silly in 24 hours. So, so all that plays out now. And we're now in the middle weekend of the French Open, uh, the first weekend of June when we're recording this on a Friday. Um, your reaction, is it, is it another inflection point like Michael Phelps, Kevin Love, where the tide comes in, everybody says they're on board, tide goes back out and we're back to the 25%? Or do you think the change is actually coming? And what is the change that you think needs to happen? So I think it's an inflection point, but not for the reasons I think that are being discussed right now. And this is just opinion, right? So mm -hmm. take us through, like, if, if you go through the chronology of what happened, okay? And, and again, all everything I'm sharing here is this mix between the facts and then my own opinion. I'll share which is which, right? right. So By the way, and keeping in mind that this was just not something that just popped up. Naomi Osaka has talked about yes. mental health and has had issues on and off the court since before she won the U.S. Open. Yes. Yeah. So you have a woman who is 23 years old, who's won four majors, to Joe's point, has talked about mental health since 2000, so, sorry, since 2020, uh, or, or it was three years ago, actually, when she won the U.S. Open, right? Yeah, pretty sure. Oh, no, she won the U.S. Open in 20. 20. Yep. So she's, she's spoken about mental health for a while, I guess is the main point there. She announces, though, here's where I, I, I have to be a little bit critical. The day before the French Open begins, on her social media channels, Correct. she announces to her 2.2 million followers on Instagram, I'm not going to be participating in post-event media. Now, the layman who doesn't understand, and the reason I brought up, you were asking me about my career before, that media is part of player obligations, right? Is the mental health advocates who are just staunch advocates were like, great for her. She's amazing. She, this is exactly what should be done, right? And here I am, guy who always wears the mental health hat, but having to take a step back and being like, I got to hear how this story plays out a little bit first because I can't jump in here if this is the only story uh, so far. So I'm a little critical of her because, in my mind at least, I, I, I don't think she did the right thing by, by doing that. Now, some of these things came out after the fact, but this is still the chronology of how they happened. The French Open reached out to Naomi, reached out to her camp, her people. She's got a full team around her and asked to talk to her. Wanted to have a conversation. What, what, what is claimed and what was asked in that conversation was to ask how she's doing, to see how they could accommodate her, and to talk about, you know, the media obligations, right? Not, not trying to sweep that underneath the rug. 
and why it was important for her to continue to participate in it. And I always, when I think about like, how is, and I know we haven't gotten yet to where, where we ended up. This is just the first couple of days. So I always think to, we need to normalize this conversation. How many people in society out there who are not favorable to the topic of mental health are hearing this story and going, this athlete wants to pick and choose in her workday what activities she participates in and what she doesn't. What is she kidding, right? So I knew that that, that sentiment was there. And, and I knew that's not, a, back to your, your question about inflection point, Joe, that's not an inflection point. That just mm-hmm. creates more divide when that's the narrative, right? So the French Open doesn't hear back from her, doesn't hear back from her people, gets together with the other three majors, with Wimbledon, with U.S. Open, yeah. with, uh, with um, Australian. Australian Open, and they release a joint press, co- uh, uh, press release, which I credit them for, jo- for releasing a joint press release. People might not be in favor. I'm not saying the wording was great. I'm not saying the tone was great. But when you partner with these players – and part of what you all do as an organization is that there are these pieces that you play in the tournaments and you speak to the media. Those are the two pieces essentially of what the tournaments are about. Um, and, and, a, and a player and a top player is just saying, I'm not going to do this and not, is not speaking to you about it. You have to talk up a little bit and explain the situation. The, what I was comfortable with, with their wording was the end of the, my favorite part of the whole press release. Again, I don't think the tone was great, but the press release was, at the end, they said, we believe in collaborative change. We want to come to a better resolution, what's best for players, for fans, for the, the, the tours, but we need there to be collaboration in order for that to take place, right? Mm-hmm. A little bit of a you know, dig, you know, shot across the bow, but, but explaining the situation as it is. Now, Naomi, to her credit, and probably her team was involved in this, released an incredible statement after that saying, yeah. I'm pulling out, but um, I hope this opened up people's eyes. I hope that um, I will be able to work with the tour afterwards, and, and the tour is plural, is what I'm assuming she means, to come to a better resolution, right? And, to, you know, I mentioned I was talking with Pam Shriver the other day. She said, well, you know, my kids are in school, and during COVID, there had to be accommodations made for, quote, different learners, right? Some who are mm-hmm. better on camera, some are worse. And I said, Pam, I'm, I'm with you on accommodations, absolutely. The problem is the way that accommodations come about aren't from – a bunch of kids standing up on the zoom and being like, no teacher, I'm not talking to you. I'm not answering that question. It's parents going to the school district and being like, Hey, this isn't best for my kid. What's the best thing we could do to make these accommodations. Right. Right. So, you know, and Pam brought up a couple of examples. You do a pool of reporters that, you know, Naomi's comfortable with, or, you know, you you change the formatting in some way. So, so, so now to your question of inflection point, what are we better off? Will this change? I think what this will do, Joe, if, Naomi and the tour get together and then hopefully other players as well, not just Naomi. And there's change that comes from this because it did a conversation with the guy from Forbes the other day. He was asking like what brands might get behind Naomi now because of this. Will, will a brand like a headspace or a talk space get behind her? And I said, I think there's an opportunity here for this to go outside of the mental health world because if she negotiates and helps bring about positive change and and is, is the impetus for that, what, you know, advertising agency wouldn't want to work with her? What consulting yeah. agency wouldn't want to work with her? What bank wouldn't want to work with her? They're all about negotiation, right? Um, so I do think there's an inflection point in that way. But, but last point in this all, Darren Ravel had a pretty critical um, tweet that I agree with, you know, and maybe not surprised because I've worked with Darren a lot, but calm 
the app after all these things played I was going I was going to you know it's funny I wasn't going to mention the name of the app but now that you brought it up go ahead Well he put it out there right so I I yeah. so so he puts out a tweet saying this is so so anyway for what Com did before I say what what Darren's tweet was Com puts out a press release that they're going to pay the fines of any player in the French Open that wants to miss media veils and and, and is getting fined for it right and, and by the way, they have no, as far as I know, they have no association with Naomi Osaka, correct? Sure, sure, of course, right? And, and, and Joe, I don't, it wasn't in relation to Naomi specifically. They were saying for right. any player, right? So in a way, yeah. dirty marketing, in my my opinion, you're right. kind of like implying endorsement of other players yes. in some way by doing this. Right? And so, you know, and you're, and you're being pro player in this way, right? And mm. after two statements came out one from the player one from the tours plural that both talk about that there needs to be change and they're going to come together how are you as a mental health organization going to then incentivize players to say f the system i'm going to take off if i need to and and and, and here's what gets me the most social media's reaction to it people clapping and being like comms awesome for doing this they're a champion for change no you're not the way you create change is by working together not by listening. being an ass. Yeah, yeah. You listening. Know? So. It, 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 listening, right? And, and so, and, and so, you know, when I shared that, some people were like, well, I'll believe there's change when, when, when I see it from the tours. Well, you haven't given them any time. <laughs> like, this, this case just came up. They're in the middle of running a tour in the middle of a global mm -hmm. pandemic. Like, give them, give them a little bit of, of room to be able to work with the players to figure this out. Mm -hmm. So, where I think this case... Because, Joe, they, I know I keep using the term inflection point because you did. There's a possibility for a positive inflection point because of the negotiations that can happen coming together based on process change. The negative inflection point that could happen from this, because we see it all the time, and you, you brought up Michael Phelps and you brought up Kevin Love, is social media has created this chasm where it's, I either think this person, this player, is the greatest person in the world or the worst person in the world. And you take one of two sides. So the sympathizers with Naomi are saying she walks on water. She talks about mental health. Nothing she did was wrong. How dare you talk about the fact that she said what she said before talking to the French Open. And then you get these other people, again, who, who DM me privately who are like, I, as an average person, don't get to take off from work. No one's going to uh, pick up my fines or, or, right. or my half day of work missed if I don't show up to a meeting, right? The answer can be somewhere in the middle. We, we as people on social media can talk about positive change without yeah. saying extremes. And, and, and that's why, you know what, like I'll, I'll talk on as I appreciate so much you having me on. I'll talk with as many people over the next however long discussing this particular case study, because if, if we defer to the other way of looking at what I described, then you're going to get people in those two different camps again, digging their feet in. Steph Curry is pro mental health. So everything Naomi did is awesome. And then you're going to get the people who are like, let's say have platforms, but are big entrepreneurs and say, average regular person that works for me can't do this. This is a terrible decision. Those two won't talk to each other. They won't get into the nuance of it because they'll yell at each other over the limited characters on Twitter and we get nowhere and we don't move forward as, as a society around mental health. So last question um, on this topic before we got to let you go yeah. is um, this past week, did this, in terms of the inflection point, um, did you get any inbound calls or have you, do you see in the near future more inbound calls from teams, leagues, brands saying this made us think a little bit more and we have to address this more? Or do you think it's just like 
we hope it goes away and she plays at Wimbledon. The organizations like the Sweet Greens of the world and, and organizations mm-hmm. like that, yes. It, not just with us. Like, I've seen the activity and the, and the press yeah. releases in their social media accounts. The, the volatility of what happened, Joe? No. Like, from, from, from the, the sports teams, the, 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 the brands and organizations that are not at the cusp of, and I don't think there's anything wrong with this per se, but not at the cusp of, of doing what some of these, you know, progressive brands are wanting to do. We want to be involved in that conversation. We want to push the envelope. It, the conversation is scaring a lot in the way from having it, right? Yeah. And think of like the, the, the cumulative effect, like not only, okay, what does it say to our fans? Then it's like, what do our employees think if we get behind this now off the heels of Naomi? Do we tell them there are a lot of takeoff meetings whenever they like, there's so many things to consider with it. So when it's volatile and it's not clean, it's not a good thing for the movement of the masses, unfortunately. Got it. So Eric, uh, before we let you go, the most important thing, um, and you've touched on a lot of the career advice you give people, but where do people find the organization? How can they get involved? Um, how do they find you? Who should they be following? Because this is obviously a topic that's going to cont- hopefully continue to grow in a positive way and not be swept under the rug. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to share. So website is easy to remember. It's samehereglobal.org. Uh, all the social channels are samehere underscore global. So at samehere underscore global. Probably our most active um, in terms of day-to-day interaction is Instagram. If people want to go there, <laughs> Twitter doesn't love positive stories. <laughs> you got, you kind of got to darn it a little bit with, uh, with ruffling mm-hmm. people's feathers and that's not necessarily our space. Uh, LinkedIn, just Eric K U S S I N. I just do personal interaction there. Um, and then in terms of getting involved, thanks for asking that. I don't lead with the name like Houston's challenge, right? Like, because I went, I lead with the name same here because yeah. I don't believe this organization is about me. I think this organization is about our collective stories. And so that's why we have alliances. We have a same here hero alliance, people who are willing to share their stories, celebrity alliance, athlete alliance, doctor alliance. So reach out. There's ways to get involved. Even something as simple as filling out the form, sharing your story, taking a picture. We normalize a conversation by showing this tapestry of different people all being open that's the way that we hold hands and do it. And you become a part of it. Yes. There's technical things and stuff like that. Of course we can get people involved in, but at least that is a starting point is what I would share. Great. Uh, and we are all a little crazy. I'm on the top of that list. So that works out. <laughs> Who would want it any other way? I mean, what do you want to just kind of be the middle of the road for something like this? You have to have, you know, the creativity inside everyone I think is makes us crazy, but in a good way. Yeah. So just ask my wife. Anyway, um, Eric Cusin, once again, same here at Global. This has been a great conversation. We can't wait to have you back on sometime, hopefully in the fall. Hopefully this drives more information to, um, to the organization and most importantly to the cause. So thanks for joining us here on the Cusp Show. Thank you so much for having me, Joe. Really appreciate it. Cool. Once again, this has been the Cusp Show. I'm Joe Favorito uh, for my co-host in, abs- in absentia today, uh, Tom Richardson. And for our producers, Tom Cerny and Taylor DiBernardo today, uh, once again, thanks for listening and we'll see you down the road. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, 
Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.